Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, David French, and Jonah Goldberg. Today, we are talking about Biden's stalled legislative agenda, Florida's new tech bill, the rise in crime, and the airspace in Belarus. reform bill done on Tuesday, the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. They're not particularly close to a compromise on that over specifically qualified immunity, uh, civil liability for police officers who violate someone's civil rights. The January 6th commission, Republicans are moving further away from it, not closer. And then perhaps most importantly to the White House, the infrastructure bill. The Biden administration started out asking for $2.3 trillion Republicans countered with $500 billion. There are more than a trillion dollars apart. Democrats have said if they can't get Republicans on board in the next week, they're going to go it alone, which is sort of how you don't end up with any incentive to compromise. So, David, my question to you is, does the Biden administration need Republicans? Well, I mean, it needs Republicans so long as the Senate parliamentarian Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema say uh, say they need Republicans, uh, at least as as far as you're talking about kind of the raw power politics of it all. Um, And so long as they say you need them, then you need them. And there's this interesting definition of bipartisanship that the Biden administration has adopted, which doesn't have much to do with bipartisanship in Congress. It's essentially saying we're going to pursue legislative initiatives that have bipartisan support in the country. In other words, there are lots of Republicans in the country who like this. And there's a certain logic to that. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a certain re-election logic to that, that you can, you can look and you can say, look, here's what we did with the tiny majority that we had as we pursued these initiatives that most of you guys liked. And you know, the Republicans, to the extent that we, we wanted to do more, the Republicans blocked us from doing more of the things that you like. Uh, but the reality is that Biden agenda is going to be limited and brief uh, unless it can start to bring some Republicans on board for some things. And, and I, you know, I have the most hope in the crime bill. I have the most hope in the crime bill. I think there's some real opportunity for compromise. It it feels like it's just laying there. It just feels like it's right in front of them. And it's it's come to terms with Sen- Senator Scott has moved on qualified immunity. He is granting the uh, increasing the ability to hold municipalities liable. That's a big move that will help people in the real world. So they, it feels like there's a compromise just right there, just right there. But outside of the crime bill, um, I'm not seeing a lot of potential <laughs> and so, I'm not seeing that, you know, cinema and mansion, uh, moving on the filibuster. So the Biden legislative agenda may be kind of short. Jonah, the Democrats argument is that they will be judged on what they get done, not on whether there was bipartisan support for it in Congress heading into the midterms. Is that the correct political calculation? Um, yes and no, right? I mean, first of all, 
they'll be judged by Democrats about what they got done. But um, if what they get done is unpopular with all Republicans and a big chunk of, you know, moderates, independents, whatever label you want to put on it, but popular with the base, it's not clear to me that that helps them in 2022. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been banging my spoon on my high chair about this for a while now. Every time a president comes into office with unified control of both houses of Congress, um, they tend to overreach. The nature of Biden's overreach is even greater because the control, the, the, the margin of control they have in both houses is so tiny. And to swing for the fences like this, um, almost demands that there's going to be a, 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 a correction, um, sooner rather than later. I mean, all the historical forces, all the, all the historical wins are at the Republicans back for taking back the, the house anyway. And the, the theory of bipartisanship that David referenced before, which we heard a lot from Democrats saying, look, it's, it's, it's bipartisan with voters. It doesn't have to be bipartisan with Congress. That's true. So long as the legislation you're talking about is in fact, bipartisan with voters. And, right. uh, that's not the case for most of the things on their agenda. And the idea that they were going to extrapolate from one very popular bill about COVID relief that was popular in part because it sent cash to human beings. And it, there's a well-established finding in the social science literature that people like free money. Um, <laughs> and the idea that that were, would therefore be replicable for all of these other, you know, uh, pieces of legislation just always sort of seemed fanciful to me. And there was a lot of believing the hype after his congressional um, address, you know, this idea that somehow the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death would be this major serious deadline rather than an entirely arbitrary deadline just seemed fanciful to me. But a lot of people in the press took it seriously and a lot of Democrats seemed to think everyone else would and they wouldn't. And so I think the part of the the, the flawed agenda, the flawed. The, the, I'm sorry, the um, stalled agenda for Biden is entirely explicable by the fact that they they had a theory that you could do this bipartisan thing with everything on their agenda when they couldn't. And it turns out that you actually need to get votes from the other side and they didn't have a very good strategy for doing that. And now they're discovered they're playing catch up, trying to figure out actually how to get Republican votes for things. And given the level of polarization, that's hard. So Steve, the progressive left wants Biden to move immediately faster. Memorial Day was the deadline. If you can't get it done in the week after Memorial Day, do reconciliation, get the infrastructure passed, get 2.3 trillion, get 10 trillion, whatever. Joe Manchin is saying, this is the long game. We need more time. Stop rushing things. It doesn't matter whether it's in two weeks or 30 days. Who's right? Um, that's a good question. Who's right politically? Um, I'm more sympathetic to the, the Joe Manson Manchin case than I am to the case being made by progressives. But <clears throat> there is, there is, there's some peril for Biden if he follows the route of the progressives. I mean, he, we could look back in six months or 12 months and say he was able to force through these things. Infrastructure, I think, is, is the most likely. Um, it's the one thing we know we can do on his own. Manchin has suggested he's not going to budge, even though he's disappointed that Mitch McConnell is not in favor of a January 6th commission. Manchin made it quite clear that doesn't change his view on the filibuster. 
Um, police reform seems to me like something that actually could happen in a bipartisan fashion, but infrastructure strikes me as a thing that is most likely for Democrats to go it alone. Biden is getting pressure from Kirsten Gillibrand, others in the Senate, obviously um, progressives in the House, to just go ahead and do it, as you said. The, the risk there for Biden is he campaigned as a guy who could bridge these partisan differences, right? I mean, that was the main, that was one of his main selling points. He had, uh, you know, a policy agenda. He vowed to return us back to normal. He said, in effect, I'm not Donald Trump. But one of the things was, you know, we have this broken politics in our country and I can be the guy to fix it. And remember his, his uh, inaugural address was all about unity and he feels it in his soul. If he can't get a bipartisan infrastructure package, that's a failure. I mean, infrastructure, there are Republicans who want to do infrastructure and there are Republicans who want to do pretty big infrastructure. Um, a lot bigger than I would want to do. Uh, if he can't convince 10 of them to get on board and keep the progressives in the Democratic Party, not only along with him, but enthusiastic about it, uh, I think it's a problem. The, the snags right now are, um, you know, there's this, there's a group that the Biden White House has been working with. Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia has been leading that group. They have had a number of places where they, they don't see eye to eye. Um, there's this second group, Mitt Romney and others are part of that. They're coming up with sort of a, a backstop proposal. If the, uh, official negotiations fail, but Republicans really don't want to get into paying, uh, for these things with, uh, tax hikes and have been pretty clear. I mean, Mitch McConnell has said without qualification, we're not doing that. We're not rolling back the 2017 tax test. But Joe Biden has said, uh, also, uh, unequivocally, no, I'm not raising taxes on anybody making less than $400,000. Um, it looks already, there are analyses already that his, his current tax proposals will have that effect on some people, but he's unlikely to go for a user, user fees or gas taxes or higher tolls because he would, he, he, the White House views that as going back on that promise. So I, I think there's some, there's some risk for Biden if he doesn't find a way to do this because he sold himself as the guy who can find a way to do this. All right, we're going to do a McLaughlin-style question now. Biden has several legislative priorities. The January 6th commission, the infrastructure package, police reform, immigration, and voting rights. Which, if any of these, will have become law by the end of 2021? David. Police reform. Jonah. Infrastructure was in that list, right? Yeah. Infrastructure. Steve. Police reform and infrastructure. Ooh, I think I got to give it to Steve here. Steve, you are <laughs> correct. All right, let's move topics. Next up, David. Yeah, so um, the war against big tech entered a new phase uh, yesterday with Governor Ron DeSantis signing into law a anti-big tech censorship law. Now, this has a few aspects to it that are interesting if you followed sort of the conservative legal movement and conservative arguments over the last, uh, I don't know, 40 years. Uh, but one of them is it is going to require social media companies to um, 
platform or host candidates for office, statewide or local office. And if a social media company deplatforms, bans a candidate for statewide or local office, there are very large daily fines that accrue. It's also going to require platforms to host the content of that come from um, news media outlets. That, in other words, it's going to require you, it cannot engage in any sort of content discrimination. Um, it will not, I'll quote, any, it cannot take any action to censor, deplatform, or shadow ban a journalistic enterprise based on the content of its publication or broadcast. And also um, puts the state looking over the shoulder of social media moderation. Um, now, this runs afoul of the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Most legal scholars say it's unconstitutional. Uh, this sounds more like an advisory opinions topic, Sarah. Um, do you think that this is a legitimate effort to regulate social media? Or is this a political action by Governor DeSantis to put him on the right side of the GOP base, knowing this thing is likely to go down in flames in court? So we've talked about paid press releases in the sweep, uh, in various parts of the dispatch, and sometimes on this podcast, I think. This is the idea that um, campaigns spend a little bit of money, for instance, a moving billboard outside the GOP conference that costs, let's say, $10,000. And the reason to do that is to get a couple news stories that say, hey, look, the DCCC put a moving billboard outside the GOP conference to troll them. It's a paid press release. Um, this is like legislative press release. I absolutely <laughs> think that uh, they know full well that it gets struck down. But that's sort of the point. It'll get a lot of attention. DeSantis is building his platform for 2024. I think he's doing it very well. And by the way, I've gotten some slack for this uh, in the comments. That doesn't mean I agree with that. It just means that politically speaking, it's well executed. Um, interestingly, David, I don't know if you followed the Texas version of this uh, that they're trying to pass before Sine Die uh, falls in Texas. Texas legislature is only in session for about six months every two years. We love our freedom. Uh, their bill goes further. It's the same idea, but in fact, it applies to all viewpoint neutrality. So if they were both to pass around the same time, I actually think the Texas one makes a better lawsuit vehicle to get struck down than the Florida one. But the Florida one's getting all the attention right now, A, because it passed, and B, because it's first. So, uh, Steve, is this, when you take this, this law, you would take the Texas law, um, and you combine it with some of the anti-woke laws that are circulating around the country. Uh, there seems to be a rush to pass laws that are really quite sweeping and dictating what teachers can say in class. Some of them even extending to what professors can say in universities. Is this the is this concrete evidence that the GOP is taking the authoritarian turn? that some folks have long warned about but has yet to have really materialized in policy? It's too early to say, I think. the If you look at what Republicans are doing and what DeSantis did, the, the reason this is challenging for him is because he's trying to take 
you know, this, this element, maybe the leading element of performative politics on the right right now is this fight against big tech. What he's trying to, to do, because Ron DeSantis has built a reputation as a guy who gets stuff done, um, is translate that into actual policy. And as you pointed out here, and as you pointed out at greater length in, in your newsletter from yesterday, there's massive pro- problems with turning that into policy. And I don't know, I, I don't think that um, many of the Repub- rank and file Republicans who are clamoring for elected officials to do something about big tech are necessarily following the details of these of this proposed legislation or, or um, legislation like it to know, to even know whether they favor it or oppose it. The, the worry from my perspective is that, you know, somebody reads a, a sober minded critique like the one that you published in your newsletter last night and might say, wow, okay, there are some real problems with this. Maybe we don't want to take these steps. This seems to go too far, even before it gets to the, to the courts. You know, they might say legislatively, this is something that we don't want to do. The problem is, I think you have a Republican electorate that is so eager for the fight about anything, just fight, just fight, that the actual policies come second. They don't matter as much. And I, I, that's what I worry is you'll find people going along with this because it's a fight, because it's taking on big tech, even if we get to the point where the ramifications are, are pretty obviously bad. Yeah. I mean, one of the ramifications of the, these bills is that it would open up family platforms, for example, to porn. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, people haven't really thought this through. Uh, Jonah, I, I'm sure uh, that you have the suffered from the same malady as I do, which is, an inbox overrun with Republican fundraising appeals. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't unsubscribe f- fast enough to keep up with the new lists I become a part of. And I don't know about you, but my inbox is all about big tech tyranny, cancel culture, and wokeness. It's all about that. Is this where the beating heart of the base is? Is this where, if you're really wanting to connect with the base, you're not talking infrastructure. You're not talking about police reform. You're talking about big tech, cancel culture, and wokeness. Yes, and and voter in, and election integrity. I think correct. You know, right, which, right. With big air quotes, massive Thanksgiving Day parade balloon air quotes around uh, election integrity. But um, yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I, I think Steve is largely right. I think that it's um, <clears throat> that you know the Case of the party cares more about owning the libs, about taking the fight, about the sort of the stuff I've been calling, you know, Alinsky envy for a decade now. Um, then it cares about public policy stuff, and I think I just it it feels like interest in actual nitty gritty of policy stuff, which was always exaggerated on the right and on the left. You know, politics is, 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 you know, people, whenever I would listen to people say, oh, that's just, you know, those are wedge issues or that's symbolism and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, that's called politics. Um, and, <laughs> um, and so we, we shouldn't think that this is, you know, that this is something truly new under the sun. It's just worse than it's been in a long time. And, 
the thing that is most worrisome is that the gatekeepers of the right who are supposed to be the ones to say, slow your roll, by all means, come up with your bumper stickers, but just so you know, we're not going to throw out the Constitution, or just so you know, we're not going to become like, um, you know, status social engineers from the right. They're kind of like, yeah, well, maybe we should be, you know, and the, 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 the corruption or the temptation to corruption, I don't mean like financial corruption, I mean intellectual corruption, for, uh, that comes with thinking that the job of intellectual conservatism and to some extent, legal conservatism is really just to be political consultants for a party has gotten worse. And I think this is yeah. downstream of that. And if if you truly don't care about policy, why not pass a law that says, um, you know, we get to figure out how to run social media platforms um, because you don't care what the consequences are of it unless it pisses off Disney, right? Because that's the one great thing about this thing is the, <laughs> I, for, the, I forgot the to carve mention out that, for yeah. Disney, which, you know, but it just gives uh, the pick, game away, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's I mean, hilarious. I remember talking about picking winners and losers being bad <laughs> um, and crony capitalism being bad. Um, but, you know, uh, so I, I, I find the whole thing corrupt and depressing. And, and, I think it's actually, I, I agree with Sarah, DeSantis has been very effective so far about playing, of threading this needle between Trumpism and, and serious governing. And I think this is the first real wrong-footed moment he's had in a while because it's not going to play out well. Maybe he'll be able to demagogue it being thrown out by the Supreme Court and saying, see, this is why we need real conservatives on there and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't feel, that 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 is a long ball um, play and in the short term he's dividing the people who normally are all you know rah-rah for him but don't you I think mean, you so, so can i can i just push back on that a little bit i mean if desantis wants to be the republican nominee in 2024 i think it's pretty clear that he does isn't this exactly the kind of fight that you pick you pick a fight that's going to that, that shows that you're taking it to you know big tech or the man whoever has de de decided to uh whoever you've decided to make the enemy and you pick this massive fight and you, you make it your issue. And even if it fails, it propels you to, to, you know, lots of TV time, lots of discussion. You can make a big argument here, sort of elide some of the details. It's sort of like what Ted Cruz did with Obamacare, right? Back in 2013, 2014, where he, there was never any chance that that was going to actually win. I thought it was a useful thing for Republicans to do just to show differentiation with Democrats. And then they went, you know, way, way, way too far. But, you know, <laughs> Ted Cruz was, was telling people at the time, I spoke to a, a member of the House of Representatives who, who described his long conversation with Cruz to me um, and said, you know, this, this member, this House member said to Cruz, like, this is never going to work. Like, we're never going to block o Obama's you know, signature package is named his named thing. This is his legacy. And Cruz just matter of factly said, well, I know, of course, but it didn't matter because he was going to be the one to fight. And Ted Cruz sort of, you know, this started yeah. out as a more of a Mike Lee endeavor to, mm -hmm. to pick this fight. And Ted Cruz kind of moved in and took it over and gave a lot of interviews. And you know, that was one of the reasons that he was a, a, a leading candidate until 
in yeah, no, I mean, that's, the, that's the rub there is like the cruise presidency is not going great so far. And um, it just seems to me DeSantis <laughs> has so many opportunities. But again, the, the, the point was games the Republican nomination fight. But yeah, the Republican. I take your point. I mean, it's a good vehicle. Yeah. He, but like, was he missing opportunities to go on Fox News? I mean, I, it just seems to me he, the, the stuff he gets out of it, he could have gotten anyway without getting, um, without giving reasons for some of his supporters to think, eh. I don't know that I cute, agree. Cute, cute I had. But we'll see. Because we'll see. You could when an right. executive runs for president, they're sort of held to their record in a way that senators get to flim flam around. So senators get to say, like Josh Hawley gets to say, I introduced a bill that would, you know, shoot Twitter to the moon. <laughs> and DeSantis, you know, I think one of I think there's a couple lessons that every Republican potential presidential candidate learned from the Ted Cruz 2016 failure. Um, one, it's not that Ted Cruz uh, over promised and under delivered. It's, if anything, that he under promised and should have promised more because uh, he got flanked from the right. Uh, and two, that he let the Republican Party sort of get out ahead of him in a lot of ways by constantly saying that they were going to repeal Obamacare and then not doing it. And sort of word got out about the the tricksy bunnies that they were doing on the vote counting there. <laughs> it looked like everyone in the Republican Party was actually, you know, thinking their voters were stupid. And the voters were like, well, let's see who's stupid now. Um so, Trixie bunnies? Is that a, like a serial <laughs> reference? I, I, yeah. I just don't. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, cool. Cool. <laughs> Saturday morning cartoons? Yeah, no. Yeah. Anyone? Trixie. Well, you bunnies. know, this whole debate remind it shows it's it's a symbol of how dysfunctional things have become because if you go back and you look at uh, some of the when when a lot of the really toxic elements of cancel culture and extreme elements of wokeness began to uh, burst out into public attention. You know, there's thing. There are things that can be done about that in existing law. There's Title VI that that prohibits dis uh, race discrimination in fund, uh, federally funded education. Title IX with sex discrimination. Title VII. All of these things are going to stand in the way of a lot of the explicitly race conscious wokeness that was coming into education, coming into the workplace. And you can sit there and say, and not to mention the First Amendment, which has long been a bulwark against some of the most toxic elements of wokeness in higher education, for example. And you sit there and you say, hey, here are these legal mechanisms that already exist to deal with the most extreme elements of this problem. And then the response is, that's weak. What I've got is this poorly drafted legislation that violates the First Amendment. <laughs> and unless you're for that, you know, you're not really fighting. You're not really fighting. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, it's like you're looking at a military strategist and you say, hey, I've got this flanking a movement idea that's going to encircle the enemy and defeat it with minimal casualties. And they go, that's weak. See that fortified hill right up there? We're going to charge it in a straight line. And if you don't want to do that, well, I mean, I don't know why you're even wearing a uniform. No, there's, I mean, that's, I mean, like, that's now the that I think about it, you're right. I mean, there's this J.D. Vanceism, right, which says at least we're trying. <laughs> Like, uh, it's, it doesn't matter how stupid, how unconstitutional, how doomed, how fatalistic, how cynical, at least we're trying, right? You know, like, like those polls that we saw last week about, uh, Americans and whether they thought they could beat certain animals in unarmed combat, you know, it's like, at least I'm trying to defeat the grizzly bear, you know, like, uh, but 
it's, it's anyway, it's just very depressing. All right. Speaking of depressing, Jonah, you're up. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, there's a wonderful essay by Tom Wolfe called The Great Relearning. I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't read it. Um, and he tells, it begins by telling the story in Haydash, about Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love where area doctors were flummoxed by all these strange maladies that they were seeing. Um, and it turned out that the, the hippies of, of the Summer of Love, by rejecting all Western customs, and accumulated knowledge that is, uh, that that basically defines civilization, that all sorts of weird diseases not seen in a century were cropping up, and doctors would have to resort to looking up these things in old nineteenth-century medical textbooks, you know, with diseases like the the rot and the the stank and this and that, whatever, <laughs> and the stank. <laughs> there's crazy names the drip i mean it's just horrible and um i'm uh, looking up the stank i'm not gonna google it i but, never but want to suffer from the stank, stank. And, um, and so tom wolf makes this point that what happens is when you try to start over at year zero there's something you know nature reasserts itself and causes you to learn lessons all over again we've talked recently about and we may be rediscovering the, the, the dangers of inflation because we're acting as if inflation's no longer a thing. And now it looks increasingly like people, enough people in enough places and enough cities have uh, convinced themselves that crime is no longer a thing to worry about. And crime is coming back with a vengeance. And so I'll start with Sarah. Uh, you know, David and I being the elder statesman on this po a podcast, we grew up at a time when there was a where crime was a major political issue in American life, particularly in the city I grew up in, in New York City. Donald Trump weirdly tried to make crime a huge issue in 2016 when crime actually was not a major problem in America. Um, but in 2024 or even in 2022, arguably it really could be. What are the prospects for crime being a major salient issue in our politics? And what does it do to the Democrats and the Republicans? I think it has the potential to be a huge issue. I doubt it will become enough of one in time for 2022, but I have no doubt it will be for 2024. So what happened in the run up to the 2016 election is that crime actually was starting to creep up for the first time in a decade plus. It just that creep was starting from such a low point that the vast majority of people weren't going to notice it. Uh, unless you lived in the city of D.C., for instance, in which case uh, maybe the incredibly high murder rate would tip you off. Or you were uh, glued to certain cable networks that made it seem like a bigger problem than it was. Sure. <laughs> so um, I was at the Department of Justice at this time. They reinstituted some policies, for instance, to really go after anyone who was in possession of a gun. Uh, this had been a policy that had been used in the 80s, early 90s that had you know, shown some good effects. Uh, crime leveled off again. And what the sort of punditry said was, see, it was never really going up in the first place. Uh, this was all much ado about nothing, sort of not even really honestly grappling with the idea that maybe the reason that it had leveled off was because of things that were being done. The answer was, well, no, the, you know, the markets of crime, so to speak, can't react that quickly. Therefore, it can't be the things that are being done on the ground by prosecutors and police. 
Um, those policies are now no longer in effect. You have COVID. Uh, you have all of the things that we don't, we've never really been able to say what causes massive upticks in crime. David and I, you know, you and I talked about this, that there's all these theories, there's all these studies. It's really hard to uh, do causation and not correlation when it comes to crime waves. Um, here's the problem. The things that the progressive left wants are pretty much the exact opposite of the things you would want to do if you wanted to lower crime. Because in order to lower crime at all, you know, the things that we know work, you need a police presence, for instance. Well, if you have a police presence, there's going to be over-enforcement as well. Over-enforcement that none of us like, by the way. But in order to not have over-enforcement, you're going to need to have under-enforcement. And under-enforcement certainly leads to crime. And this is just a sort of cold, hard reality that I don't think that either political party is going to want to grapple with the nuance because no one wants to be the party of over-enforcement and no one wants to be the party of under-enforcement. Um, but that's exactly the debate we're going to have because that's the debate we've had every time there's been a spike in crime. And not surprisingly, the over-enforcement crowd tends to win because at least in over-enforcement, the murder rate goes down, the violent crime rate goes down, and humans are very susceptible to anecdotes. And it doesn't take too many anecdotes of, you know, mom walking her baby, six-year-old being shot, which by the way, I mean, those are just headlines from like the last 24 hours. And sadly, the 24 hours before that and the 24 hours before that, um, I don't know how many six-year-olds need to get shot in the head before we can have a real conversation about this without demagoguing it on both sides that maybe we have a real problem right now. So I find it incredibly frustrating. I think it's up there with education and schools reopening in terms of an issue that actually affects people's lives, their ability to go to the grocery store at night, um, to keep their children safe, to feel like they can engage in the economy. But instead, we're going to talk about how if you're for having police on the ground, you're for you know racial horribleness and and systemic racism. But if you're not, then you're for defunding the police and abolishing prisons and letting Chapo out. I actually saw that ad yesterday. That, <laughs> let Chapo out? Yes, that the left <laughs> wants to let Chapo out. That oh, is the gosh. messaging okay. in the, uh, is it New Mexico special election? I mean, we're not going to get anywhere if those are the messages. So, David, I know you're, now that you're for getting rid of uh, qualified immunity, you are pro crime, but, um, <laughs> objectively, <laughs> where do you, where do you draw the line here? Because as our resident hardcore civil libertarian, who also is like Mr. Law and order, um, where is the trade-off and do you have any confidence that our political leaders are going to be able to draw these fine distinctions and acknowledge these various trade-offs? Yeah, I don't have much confidence right now. Um, at with our current leader class on virtually any issue. Um, you know, look, as Sarah said, this is super, super complicated stuff. And to say that if you do A or B or C, you're going to fix it or it's going to get, uh, that you're going to fix it is just wrong. But we do know that there are some things that are extremely counterproductive. Um, and and a a dramatic decrease in policing <laughs> At the same time that there's an increase in, in criminality is pretty counterproductive. Um, 
And so, you know, one of the things I'm going to go all old man, um, since I'm the oldest person by far, by months and months on this, <laughs> on this podcast, people don't, if you're not like sort of my age, if you're younger than me, which is now most of America, you don't have a conscious memory of how bad it was in the, in the 1980s and the early 1990s. I mean, you know, one of the ways you can tell how bad it was is you look at what, what was, what was a dystopian movie at that time? Well, a dystopian movie at that time would be like Escape from New York, where the entire island of Manhattan had been relegated to become a penal colony, or Running Man, where you had Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, was, was being prosecuted because one of the things that he did in the middle of urban combat with an attack helicopter is he killed too many people. I mean, like <laughs> this is this is sort of like the background of it was crime in the cities is getting is horrible. It's getting worse. We don't know where it's going to end. And so, you know, can I just give another really important pop example from the 80s, early 90s? Sure. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Literally the whole premise of a children's franchise was that crime in New York was out of control and that you needed turtles to fight the crime. If you remember the movies, it was really dark and Shredder had this like gang of young, uh, you know, thugs on skateboards um, that were, you know, robbing little old ladies and taking their purses. And like, thank goodness we had the mutant turtles and their mentor the mutant turtles splint, um, splinter. Yeah. Splinter the rat. And so one of the things that, that, um, you know, when you're talking about public policy here, one thing that I think that, uh, that needs to be considered is smarter law enforcement with more resources and better training is imperative. It's imperative. I mean, some of the, the, police tactics that were used that began to change the crime rate in America that were part of the picture that were part of it involved practices such as just putting people on street corners where there was crime like put presence having the presence of cops in a particular place where there was crime um i've written many times that the response isn't defund the police it's to pay more train more expect more which was sort of the way we climbed out of the military's, uh, dis, you know, the, the, the military decline post-Vietnam, pay more, train more, expect more. We got a much more elite force. So yeah, I have very little confidence, but here's one thing that I do know. I do know, going back to qualified immunity, the way to restore peace in our cities is not to grant greater ability to violate civil rights with impunity. I, I would say that that is not part of the formula um let the record show i grew up not far from the setting for death wish um <laughs> i switched buses to get to high school where panic and needle park was set um mm. you can see vast swaths of my neighborhood including my synagogue in marathon man where they have uh um uh murder and mayhem anyway uh um Steve, um, so Ezra Klein, you know, had this interesting take on Twitter and then I guess on his podcast where he points out, I think rightly, that there is nothing more corrosive to the liberal ambitions for government than crime. And yet it is so... It, it, 
this is what you know i have this refrain common refrain on here where i say both parties are determined to be minority parties um it seems to me that there is <laughs> there's there's nothing more obvious as an objective matter that than that the idea that democrats should take crime seriously um if you look at polling if you look at you know like defund the police was unpopular with african americans and hispanics by orders of magnitude and yet they listen to this constituency that tells them that they are speaking for these these groups that says that authentic black and hispanic people want to get rid of cops which is just factually untrue do you think it biden mr police bill you know mr hundred thousand cops has it in him to actually take on the base of his own party on this issue given that he probably knows in his heart it's the right politics well look during the campaign, when the defund the police questions arose, Biden didn't embrace them, right? He, he said, and you know, he, you're in some criticism from critics on the right that he wasn't forceful enough or he tried to play cute with language. But ultimately, I think his position was pretty clear that he was not for defunding the police. Um, now, I, you know, he didn't make a show of it. He didn't sort of uh, run around saying this in every speech. He didn't give a speech that was pushing back on the progressives in his party. But I think he ended up not embracing this position that was, um, you know, that really wasn't a, uh, a fringe position in the Democratic Party. I mean, I, you know, I, I take, take the points that, you know, we don't want to oversimplify and it's important not to, to pretend that, that, the, the two arguments, uh, the, the two sort of far out arguments on either side are actually speaking for where most people are. On the other hand, you didn't have a ton of real active pushback on the defund the police arguments. I mean, Joe Biden, as I say, he, he made his position relatively clear. He didn't take them on. He didn't say that's a disaster. What are you talking about? Defund the police. That's crazy. We can't defund the police. He didn't sister soldier it yeah, right? at all. He didn't at yeah. all. I mean, he he said it, which was enough to sort of take it out of the news. But he didn't make make it a big issue. And I think you know we we've certainly seen since that it has pretty serious political ramifications. I agree um, with the Ezra Klein argument that this could do real long term damage to Democrats, in part because so many people do associate the party with defund the police. And, you know, you, you had, you had prominent Democrats, you, you had, um, you know, activists embracing defund the police. And then when, when others on the left would kind of try to talk them down or talk them out of it or say, well, you don't really mean defund the police. They would say, the hell we don't, we do mean defund the police. Let's get rid of the police. That I think is a problem for Democrats and people are going to associate uh, Democrats with that position. But we also can't, I mean, j just to take a step back on the, on the broader issue of crime, you can't, you know, as we've talked about before, I think some of the, the, converse, the national conversation that we've had on policing and aggressive policing needed to happen, needed to happen now and, and is helpful and hopefully will, will produce um, some necessary reforms. But you also have to stop and think about the effect of this conversation on the police, on the good cops, because who in their right mind would want to be a cop right now? You know, 
it's it's a it's a position which society seems to assume that you're a bad guy, that you're going to do things uh, that violate the rules. Um, you're, you know, the, the qualified immunity debate, um, I think is a, is a reasonable debate to have, but if you're a cop and you're following it, you say, Hey, I'm a good cop. I'm not, I'm not going after anybody. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not violating the rules. I'm not violating the laws. I want that protection. Um, and it's, and it's now going to be gone. I mean, you, there's a reason that you're seeing record retirements in some police forces around the country. And I think they're having difficulty recruiting. So on, on the one hand, you don't have as many people who are going into uh, policing as you once did. And also, just in terms of the practical effects of day-to-day policing, um, how likely are you going to be to take a risk to, you know, in a confrontation? You know, think about the, the young woman in Ohio who was shot, the 16-year-old who David wrote about. And, you know, David made the, the case, I thought, totally persuasive case. This was actually really good police work. You know, that, that within the nine seconds or whatever it was, the cop assessed the situation, saw a threat and eliminated the threat and didn't really have uh, any, any other choice. But that person, you know, for half of the country is now an enemy. And, and he did have made a choice. A cause. He could have not done anything and let the stabbing happen. Right. He could have, right? And that's and, the Ferguson effect. That's and, what Jim and, Comey, and in, by the way, been in trouble. That. Yeah. Well, I don't think he would have been in trouble. It would have been like, well, it was just happening so fast. It took me twelve seconds, and by that point, she had already stabbed her. Um, and I think that that's what you'll see more often: second guessing reaction yeah. times. Uh, and and this is what you know when you go back to 2014 and what Jim Comey again coined the Ferguson effect. That's exactly what it is. It's this idea that cops will stay in their cars and think through a situation before getting out instinctually. And that that's why you were seeing the uptick in crime heading into the 2016 election. Um, Now, again, do I think that is the sole cause of crime going up? Absolutely not. But uh, we know that if police officers stay in their car and don't get out in that exact situation, we at least have one example where almost certainly a young woman would have been stabbed. So there's one. I I mean, under policing and go ahead, ahead, John, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I I understand and I think it's entirely defensible and right that everyone focuses so much on things like murder because murder is really bad. I think we can all whenever it comes up for a vote, we all vote against murder. But uh, one of the things that we you forget is that petty crime is really bad for poor people. Um, and, um, the way to think about it, not maybe not all the time, but to sort of change your perspective is to think of the way economists do about crime is, is a tax. And if you're talking about things like access to good groceries, you know, food deserts and that kind of thing, if you're talking about access to healthcare and that kind of thing, um, the more crime there is more crime, first of all, more crime is going to be in poor communities. And the more crime there is in poor communities, the fewer businesses there are going to be. And the businesses that are there are going to charge a lot more for the things that they sell. In San Francisco, we're having a controlled experiment on this, where basically companies are, have basically stopped enforce and police have stopped enforcing laws against shoplifting. 17 Walgreens have closed down as a result 
of just wild shoplifting. Now, where do you think those Walgreens are going to be closed? They're not going to be closed in the ritziest neighborhoods. They're going to be closed in the places that probably don't have a lot of other drugstores to go to, a lot of other pharmacies to go to. That, and, Jonah, by the way, so Steve and I interviewed Liz Cheney. What was that? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Steve? Uh, uh, notorious shoplifter, her, Liz Cheney. We interviewed her at yeah. 9.15 a.m. We probably wrapped up at, a, you know, I was probably out the door by 11, Steve. I needed to go uh, pick up some ibuprofen for the baby. So there's a CVS right across from our office. And there's two uh, entrances to the CVS on each side of the block because it spans the whole width of the block. So I wanted, obviously, to go in the entrance that's right across from the door to our office. And it was locked. I was very annoyed, like irrationally annoyed, as one gets sometimes when one's wearing heels and then has to walk, you know, two blocks, basically, to get to the other side of the store. And I walked in. I bought the thing that I needed. And uh, and I you know, made some smart alecky remark is like, well, I guess I have to go out this way since that way is closed. And the woman behind the counter said, no, 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 you can go out that way. It's just that um, we shut that because we're only two women here manning the front desk, you know, the cash register today. And um, and like we just can't fight off everyone by ourselves. Goodness. And yeah. I was a uh, incredibly struck by what a jerk I had been to be mad that I had to walk two blocks uh, to get to the other entrance. But also at 11 a.m. in the morning, these women had to shut an entrance to the CVS in the middle of downtown D.C. because they were so worried about crime and their own ability uh, and the resources that they had been given. No mention that, of course, like there were any police anywhere. There weren't. Yeah. Um, that's exactly the point, Jonah. Like, will that CVS be around in six months? No, and, right. and, and the, our neighborhood for our office is kind of a businessy kind of neighborhood. What about yeah. a neighbor? What about a neighborhood five blocks, you know, over, where it's a residential neighborhood? And, um, and and and, and this just sort of gets to my point about like how crime is so corrosive to the sort of everything that like decent liberals want government to be able to do is undermined not just because of faith and trust in in government institutions, but undermined in faith and trust of other human beings. Um, and it, it is, it, it has it creates huge barriers to em entry for opportunity for, for poor and disadvantaged people. And all you have to do is talk to, you know, most non-activist African-Americans from these kinds of communities. And, and, and they'll just say things like, yeah, we'd like to see more cops here. <laughs> you know, right. like we'd like them to be good cops. We don't want them to be like, you know, uh, you know, brutes and and bigots or anything like that but most aren't you know and in dc a big chunk of the cops are, are african-american and um the just the, the the quality of life issues i think are so poisonous when you have high levels of crime and for people who, who didn't grow up with this stuff i mean people forget from 1957 to 1993 crime in america went up sixfold yeah um and with corresponding numbers for things like murder, rape, and homicide and that kind of stuff. And um, that was as dangerous, that was as poisonous to any of the ideals of the great society as um, any arguments from the neoconservative egghead journals that I love so dearly. You know, two, two quick things on this. One is on the tactics of combating crime, again, under policing in the face or pulling back in the face of increasing criminalization is the worst thing to do. And we learned this in the 1990s. Remember, back before Rudy Giuliani became what he is today, you know, he came in 
And it was so effective in fighting crime in New York City that the decrease in New York's crime rate was at one point accounted for a massively disproportionate part of the total decrease in the American crime rate. Yeah, something like one, like a ten percent drop in New York was a one percent drop nationwide, or something like that. It was huge. Yeah, it was amazing. And one of the things they did, and and uh, some some listeners will remember this, is CompStat policing, and that was where they would put these pins in maps as to where crime was occurring, and they would flood police resources into this area, and it made a huge difference. I mean, some of the statistics are just mind boggling. So on the, on the tactical standpoint, this idea that says oh, what we need to do when things are becoming more lawless is have less policing. No, no. Um, smart policing and smart presence is indispensable. The other thing is, if you're, on the, if you're on the Democratic side of the House, is, look, people forget there was a period of time in which Republicans controlled the White House for 20 out of 24 years. Yeah. From 1968 to 1992, Republicans controlled the White House for all but four years. And for a lot of that time, even though Republicans didn't control the House, they had working majorities in the House because there were different factions in the Democratic Party that they could work with. And so Republicans controlled for 20 out of 24 years. And Republicans had a pretty simple message back then. We're against the bad guys. The bad guys are communists and criminals, and we're against those. And had a very effective argument to the social justice left, which was the social justice left was saying, well, no, you're, you're missing out in this whole area of social justice and inequality. And the Republican response was, wait, let, why don't we stop people from dying at scale in the streets? And then we can start to rebuild communities, which was a pretty darn good argument, actually. And so if the Democratic Party thinks that weakness, for example, in the face of rising criminality or even weakness abroad when confronting like the People's Republic of China um, isn't going to give the Republican Party a, a saner, smart Republican Party ability to step in and say, we're against the bad guys. That's who we are. They're fooling themselves. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right. And we've got Belarus. Speaking of communists and criminals, um, <laughs> Segway. The this past Sunday there was really an extraordinary moment um, in our geopolitics. Um, a plane, Ryanair plane, 
uh, a, a, an Irish company. The plane was actually based in Poland. It's basically the Southwest Flew, Airlines of Europe, right? It's a cheap yes. airline. Yeah. Right. Flew from Athens to Vilnius, Lithuania. And uh, in the middle of the flight, there was a fake bomb scare. The pilots were forced to land in Belarus. A young journalist, 26-year-old journalist named Roman Protasevich, was uh, taken by Belarusian uh, authorities, along with his girlfriend, which I think is an important part of the story, um, and in effect uh, taken political captive. Uh, this young man, Roman Protasevich, organized rallies in opposition to Alexander Lukashenko, the strongman dictator in Belarus, been in power even longer than Vladimir Putin. Uh, and they subsequently, two days later, released a video in which he, it was you know, sort of classic hostage video. Uh, he looked like he'd been bruised up a bit. He confessed to his crimes quote-unquote crimes. His Russian girlfriend um, also was featured in a, a video in which she confessed to her crimes, and uh, they are still being held to this day. As this young man was taken off the plane, he told fellow passengers that this was a death sentence, that he was going to be killed because he'd been so active in uh, organizing these rallies against Lukashenko when Lukashenko stole uh, an election last year. Basically, everybody who watched the election, observed the election internationally, believes that the election was stolen. Lukashenko remained in power and used strong-arm tactics to quash these, uh, these rallies, these uh, rallies against his regime. There are about a million questions uh, about the, the response, about what Europe should do, about what the United States should do. Um, but before I get to those, I want to talk about Russia. Lukashenko and Vladimir Putin have this sort of hot and cold relationship. They're not buddies, uh, but they've, they have sort of a mutually exploitative relationship. And, uh, it is widely believed, was widely believed at the time, in part because there were reportedly four Russians who were on the same flight who also got off uh, when the flight was forced down uh, in, in Belarus. Um, the speculation is that they were um, Russian intelligence officials, uh, KGB officials. Uh, Vladimir Putin's reaction, the reaction of the government, is not what you would expect. Um, particularly given the fact that uh, Roman Protasevich's girlfriend is a Russian. If you are the Russian president or the Russian government and one of your citizens is, in effect, kidnapped by uh, a neighboring country, you would think that the Russian government would speak out against this. And in fact, what the Russian government has done in many ways is, is signal its approval of this. So, David, I'll start with you. What do we make of this sort of stunning, aggressive, reckless act of state-backed terrorism and kidnapping? And should we be more concerned about uh, Lukashenko and Belarus or what this might mean in terms of Vladimir Putin? Um, so one is things have changed a lot. Um, I, I'm going to pull out a reference that I think has never been used in dispatch history. 
the war of Jenkins ear. Um, yeah, the war of Jenkins Stank. ear. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where Jenkins ear is now, but it was, uh, involved. This was a, a Spanish, um, in 18th century war, Spanish sailors boarded a British ship and cut off the ear of one of the, um, uh, of the captain of the British merchant ship eventually was played up and turned into war. I'm thinking about the impressment problems that led to, for example, conflict with the War of 1812. I mean, these kinds of things where you interfere with navigation, international navigation, uh, haul people off for perhaps, you know, who are uh, under the protection of international treaty or international norms and customary international law, haul people off planes. What it tells you along with, you know, when you put it in the context of things like the Crimean invasion and everything else is Vladimir Putin and the fact that, in, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just, this could be wrong, but, you know, the presence of Russians, the dominant position of Russia in this r- relationship um, between Belarus and Russia, unlikely this occurred without Putin's approval. What it shows is that Putin will press to the red line. He will go to the red line in, in, in provoking conflict with the full knowledge that the response will be largely ineffective. and. Here's what, here's what worries me about this kind of course of conduct. And that is, uh, if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that once a dictator starts pushing, it's unlikely that the dictator will stop pushing because every single act of is sort of international consent teaches him that he can take the next step and take the next step. And so what ends up happening is at some point, international peace and safety starts to rest almost entirely on whether or not there's going to be self-restraint eventually on the part of the dictator. Um, and that, that is what makes me feel very nervous about the future. Do I think that this is something that would or should lead to armed conflict? No. Should it lead to a rather strong, a strong international response, muscular international response? Absolutely, it should. Will it? I'm very, very skeptical. And then what that will teach Putin is he can do the next thing that he wants to do. And history also teaches us that eventually people say too far and things can turn very dangerous and deadly. I was listening to an interview. Go ahead, sir. I was going to say, I feel like my hawk talons are showing and that David is just like folding up his little dove wings here. You're telling me, David, that that you like, I don't understand. We go get the guy. They don't get to keep the guy. Like they have to release the guy or there are consequences. The end. They do not keep him. You do not kidnap someone off a plane with a bomb threat that was fake so that you could down a commercial airliner to kidnap someone and then they keep the guy. Or what? So here's the thing. You have to think this through. Or what? And who does it? I have no, an no, idea. No. To be or clear, what? to be clear, David, very much or what? Like I'm, yes. And in other words, NATO. send. Yeah. So, how how about this? Look, I mean, <laughs> send NATO in, yes. mobilize the U.S. military. Yes. Get a formal declaration of war through the U.S. Congress. Yes. Invade Russia's near abroad into the teeth of its defenses. Yeah. Into its nuclear defense umbrella. Yep. To get this guy. Yep. Nope. <laughs> <Okay>. Nope. <laughs> so, I just don't see how you can let this stand. Well, how about in something short of that? Look, I, in like what has two thumbs and would love to see NATO saber rattle this guy. Yeah, but um, 
basically, certainly for Belarus and maybe for Russia too, just simply say, uh, you've lost all privileges to land your planes in any EU or NATO aligned yep. country until this yeah. guy is released. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. for all the things yeah. short of, so of my point doing is, what like, David said, but David said, or what? And like, I agree that at the back end, after you've tried all of those things, there does have to be an or what. And I'm just saying, yes, after we say like, no more flights and we don't fly in your airspace and your people can't fly, like totally isolate them until you turn over this guy that even then they're still an or what. And I'm just saying, David, yep. And I'm for the or what at the back end. So I would say he's not worth flirting with nuclear war. Um, that would be my contention. But I, I do agree with Jonah that there are ways to isolate Belarus dramatically that should be explored. Look, I mean, like if we just said, look, we're not honoring, forget sanctions on leaders of regimes and stuff, which we normally is the way we do this. We're just simply not honoring Russian or Belarus passports until this guy's released, period. Mm -hmm. You know, and that means you want to cripple someone's economy. Don't let any elite business people I mean, leave Belarus or Russia indefinitely. Um, yeah, there'd be some retaliation. Okay. But like, I think the West can outlast Russia and Belarus on lack of transport, you know, la lack of travel to their countries. I will say there. But I you have to keep the borders open, right? I mean, there are people living under the Lukashenko regime who want out. Yeah, there are okay. regular Belarusians that, people, that people can be leave. They just can't out. go back in. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you can figure out something. But I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm with Sarah in that there is no way the international order can and people forget it wasn't just that they faked the bomb scares they sent a mig to also escort that. this yeah. plane yeah. and yeah. um just in case the bomb scare didn't work and that <laughs> right. yeah, and the thing is like you can't have civil aviation you know peaceful aviation in the world if governments think they can get away with this kind of thing and um i have no faith in that the eu won't just completely wimp out on this but they 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 should take it really really seriously but i gotta say there's something i mean it's sort of like the the dark side thing with the colonial pipeline attack there's just something in the water about bad guys being willing to sort of own their bad guyness yeah in ways that they didn't didn't before i mean it's it's like you know in in bad action movies the villains are like we are the champions of villainy you know they own their bad guyness and more and more of the world, we're seeing groups and in dictators just saying, "Yeah, what of it? I'm we're the bad guys, and I'm going to own it." And um, there's something a little refreshing about that. The problem is, is that it should elicit a good guy response from good governments. If they're going to be so naked in how they're bad guys, then it shouldn't be politically complicated to be good guys. There's and a very. It yeah. seems like there are. There's a very clear cause and effect in my in my view on this, and it goes back to both the point that you're making there, Jonah, and a point that David made earlier. They're testing and probing. They've been doing this for years. I mean, both Lukashenko and Vladimir Putin have been pushing, and they, they push to see how far they can get. And when there's nothing really stopping them or no serious consequences, then they push some more. I heard an interview with... Uh, China the does who, the same thing. China does the same thing, and China's, you know more difficult to push back on for a variety of reasons. Um, By the way, Taiwan is a country. The, uh, Taiwan is Taiwan a country, is a country. yes. <laughs> the, um, the, the leader of the opposition in Belarus 
made exactly the point that that David made in an interview that I heard her give. Uh, I believe it was the BBC. She said, this is what Lukashenko has been doing for years. He pushes and pushes and pushes and nobody stops him. So he pushes further. And this is what we're seeing with Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, we have not yet established concretely that that Putin was involved, but I agree with David that it's hard to believe that he wasn't. Dominic Robb, the foreign secretary of uh, uh, in in Britain, said, "I'll be careful what I say at this point. It's very difficult to believe that this kind of action could be taken without at least the acquiescence of the authorities in Moscow." Uh, I think that is understating things for for probably for good reason. But it's hard to believe that it wasn't Vladimir Putin. But think about what Putin did. Think about his aggression in Georgia, which didn't get much of a a serious long-term response. Think about what he did in Ukraine. He slapped some sanctions on him. But the U.S. response at that time was, we're giving you an off-ramp. That was the the diplomatic phrase that the Obama administration repeatedly, here's your off-ramp. Please take this off-ramp. He didn't want to take an off ramp. He was on the highway. He was doing this on purpose. And because that was allowed, in effect, to stand, it's no surprise that he's going further and he's going further and he's going further. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm probably, I did not come into this conversation thinking that I would be the, maybe the most dovish of the group. I, I'm, I'm not um, where Sarah is on threat of nuclear war and going in and grabbing him. Um, I don't, I just don't know how that happens on a, in a practical way, but I am. Give Sarah the launch for everything. For everything. My point is that that you have to say that there is nothing we won't do. I, I am not actually saying that that's what you do do, but you can't take things off the table to say like, if this doesn't work, this is all we'll try. Like, no, no, of course not. Nothing's off the table. But I'm not sure. You, I, I'm not sure. Again, for the reasons I just suggested, that people are going to believe that Joe Biden would be willing to do, you know, that would would be willing to go that far. I mean, the Obama administration certainly didn't. Um, you know, for all the problems I had with Donald Trump's ad hoc foreign policy, he would have at least instilled some sense of fear that he would have been, you know, that maybe he would have really gone after them. But I, I would say that the statement that we got from the Biden administration to me, was very disappointing. It was a passive statement saying, in effect, yeah. we're looking at our European friends. We're glad that they're taking these steps. It'd be great to, to close off the airspace and we'll look to follow their lead, in effect. And that's just not the right position, certainly with respect to the United States. Maybe they will step it up if there are deeper indications of, of Russian involvement, but it was a bad, in my view, a bad start. Well, also, so if, it, if, let me, if, there's, if you can't do, take on Russia, fine. Russia is using Belarus as a testing, as a probing mechanism, right? They're using it as a, um, as essentially like an away team for, for Russia interests. So put, just triple the punishment on Belarus. Say, hey, look, we don't have any evidence Russia had anything to do with this, but this is what happens to small crappy countries that we actually can, you know, throw up against the wall. And the signal still gets to Russia that, you know, I mean, who cares if we're being quote unquote unfair to Belarus? They're the ones who took the guy. They're the ones who did it. If Russia lets them do it, um, you know, that's on Russia. And if, if Belarus thinks that Russia is going to come to its aid and say, um, you know, okay, well, we'll take those sanctions on too. Um, let it. 
but you know, just say pretend as if Russia had nothing to do with it. And this pipsqueak country thinks it can get away with this. Screw that noise and go after them, and then say, leave it to Russia to say, figure out how whether they want to get Belarus's back. Couple things, real fast. One. Um, I had a long conversation with a RAND expert on Russian military power not long ago and asked him bluntly, does, do, does NATO have the ability to beat Russia on its doorstep right now with the forces that are available in Europe? And he said, no, no, that Russia is stronger on its doorstep than NATO. It would require mobilization from the United States to beat Russia on its doorstep. Um, number two, let's put this in context to recent events. Yeah. He just, Putin just massed troops on the Ukraine border. Now, there was a lot of condemnation for that. A lot of condemnation. Nobody liked it in Europe. But if you're a military strategist, if you're a cold-eyed realist, what are you looking at? Are you looking at words? Or are you looking at actions? And here's the action that would matter if I'm Putin. It isn't Biden saying this and Merkel saying this and all of that. It's not that at all. It's disposition of forces. Was there a concrete change in the disposition of NATO forces in response to a Russian, a mass of Russian troops on the Ukraine border? Now, maybe that occurred privately, uh, but I saw no evidence of a large scale change in disposition of forces, which meant that what you're dealing with was words. Okay, so he pulls back from there. And then what, like two, three weeks later? You've got an airliner essentially downed on its way to, um, you know, transversing international airspace. And he's kind of already got his answer from the Ukraine test as to where he can go next. And so I'm I'm completely it's so funny. I The last thing I thought I'd be accused of was being a dove <laughs> just because I don't think we're ready to put, you know, the first armored division in eastern poland quite yet i'm um, tired of this but, stuff khashoggi i know the khashoggi situation is so wildly different in some ways but it's this idea that you can you know grab people that don't belong to you kill them and we're all going to send out our condemnation statements it's got to stop but one thing no but one thing i will say is all of this as jonah just said um bad guys showing their bad guyness it all feels kind of pre-war. Mm-hmm. It does. And let me, can I provide further context, David? I mean, I think the context is, is really important here. If if Russians are shown to have been involved, and it's worth noting, like, it wasn't just that that four Russians got off the plane, that uh, they they didn't make any claim to return um, the, the journalist's girlfriend. Um, you had Russian state actors, top state, journalists, um, in effect saying this was great. Top, top parliamentarians in Russia saying, Hey, this is great. And, uh, no condemnation. You have to look at what else Putin's been doing. I mean, Putin has been trying to assassinate people, uh, around the world, well beyond Russia's borders. He's holding, uh, Alexander Navalny, Alexei Navalny in prison, um, on trumped up charges, leader, leader of the Russian opposition. Um, he has sort of stepped up what he's doing. And I think that the concern I have in terms of the U.S. response is we seem to be not only not confronting him in the way that we need to be confronting him, we're kind of doing him favors. 
So the, the U.S. waives these sanctions on the Russian pipeline, whether you think it was going to be completed or not. It was 95% there. There's some argument that was going to happen regardless. But the, the message that that sends was, I think, a counterproductive message. The White House, the Biden White House has been talking about a summit with Putin uh, for quite some time and then officially announced it uh, after all of this. Now, this summit is scheduled for, for June, a, a Biden-Putin summit. Why would we reward Vladimir Putin with a summit right now? This guy is, this, this is totally counterproductive and, and aggressive, reckless behavior. And the president of the United States is going to sit down with him now. Um, he, Putin has just invited Lukashenko to meet with him in Sochi later this week. That, in effect, is a tacit blessing on what's happened. And Joe Biden's still going to meet with Vladimir Putin. At the very least, that summit should be canceled. And I would say if we can attribute Russian involvement to, to any of this, there have to be very serious steps for this. Or we will, we will I think, invite similar behavior in the future to Jonah's point. And to imagine we know so little about Robert Jenkins and his year's career. Thank you all. Uh, this is a, a feisty conversation. I enjoyed it. Uh, we'll do it again soon. Taiwan is a country. <laughs> Stank. Stank.